0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: U.S. Farm Report is back on the road this weekend, this time taking a deep dive into dairy from the World Dairy Expo over the next 60 minutes. A rapid rise in costs.
2: We're feeling substantial pressure from feed inflation. I believe every producer in the country is feeling it.
1: From labor to input costs, it's eating into dairy margin outlooks this year. Increasing input costs are also a pain point for row crop farmers.
3: The only time that we can compare this to was 2008.
1: But is there even enough fertilizer to supply the corn acres currently penciled in this year? Our analysts discuss. A dairy demolished less than a month ago hit with a rat from Hurricane Ida.
4: As we pulled up here, the main Drive, it was just, I couldn't believe what I was looking at.
1: How this dairy farmer is finding the strength to persevere. And in John's world,
5: just charge it.
1: Well, Madison, Wisconsin is alive this week with dairy farmers and industry leaders. After the show was canceled last year due to the pandemic, the in-person show is happening this week as outlooks from dairy farmers are seeing a bit of a shift. We'll have more on that later on the show. Well, more financial help is on the way to producers as they battle drought, as well as efforts to keep African swine fever out of the country and deal with the supply chain crunch impacting pretty much all of ag right now. Secretary Tom Vilsack making the announcement about a new aid package during a speech at Colorado State University this week. This latest aid will provide support through the Commodity Credit Corporation. Sacks, saying USDA is preparing $3 billion for the effort. $500 million will go to support drought recovery and encourage water smart management practices. And up to $500 million will go to prevent the spread of ASF. Now another $500 million will go to provide relief from market disruptions, including transportation, availability, and the cost of certain materials.
0: Major disruptions in supply chains have arisen from our ports and even into our school lunchrooms. American producers are frustrated by the fact that empty container ships are leaving our ports while agricultural products sit on the dock waiting to leave our shores.
1: And $1.5 billion will be used to provide help for schools also dealing with supply chain disruptions. With bases tight right now, all eyes were on the quarterly grain stocks report issued by USDA this week. The Quarterly Grain Stocks report issued by USDA this week sent some surprise supply shocks to soybeans. USDA pegging old crop stocks at 256 million bushels, down 51% from last year, but higher than the trade expected. That's as USDA revised last year's production up 80 million bushels, and as a result, soybean futures fell double digits both Thursday and Friday. USDA also revised old crop corn stocks to 1.24 billion bushels, down 36% from last year on a small smaller harvest. Those stocks are the lowest since 2014. Wheat stocks came in a little lower than the market expected as well, coming in at 1.78 billion bushels. That's down 18% from a year ago. And USDA reporting a new possible tool to fight ASF. The agency says agricultural research service scientists have developed a possible vaccine that has the ability to be commercially produced. Studies show the vaccine candidate provided immunity in one third of swine by the second week after vaccination. Also happening this week, ships are continuing to stack up outside the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach in California, an area that moves more than a quarter of all American imports. Take a look at this map, courtesy of marinetraffic.com. All those little green dots represent cargo vessels that are currently anchored at or near the port. The Marine Exchange of Southern California says it set a record for total vessels in port last weekend of 161. It's estimated some ships may have to wait three weeks to unload. Experts tell us the supply chain disruptions could last much longer.
3: In particular, regions of China sort of shutting down when a new um, uh, variant starts to come into play or there's an outbreak of an existing variant. That's the kind of thing that will keep this shortage alive. Uh, so the, the sooner we can get out of those uh, short-term uh, disruptions to the supply chain at the manufacturing end, the quicker we can sort of get through and have a more normal supply chain picture. But we're looking at 2022 before we can get into that uh, that reality.
1: And it's also costing a lot right now to move product overseas. Global container rates hit an all-time high of more than $11,000 earlier this month. That's after having fallen below $1,500 at the start of the pandemic. And to the south, Hurricane Ida is compounding the supply chain issue for agriculture. Bayer confirms its glyphosate production plant, Louisiana, is still offline, more than a month after the storm. Fertilizer production and imports are also being impacted. That has the industry questioning whether the U.S. will even be able to source enough fertilizer this next year.
3: The only time that we can compare this to was 2008. Now, we had a little bit more of a lead up to it, and we started from a slightly higher price. We started the 2008 saga. Uh, we started closer to probably $350 a ton, NOLA urea, and we spiked out at about $825. So we are not at the historic highs yet, even though it feels like it, we're not quite there. The problem with this one, though, is back in 2008, it was all demand driven. We never had problems finding supply. It was just what price are you willing to find or willing to pay to get your hands on it? This one is a much more supply-driven you look at it.
1: Linville says twelve months ago potash prices in the Gulf were setting at about $190 a ton. Today that same barge would trade at $640. Well, a dry harvest means fires this harvest are a growing concern. We'll see where rain may be on the way next. now for a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Hoffman. Mike Harvest is progressing quickly in some areas, yet others seen some slowdowns due to rain. So how's the forecast shaping up for this first week of October?
6: Good morning to you, Tyne. Well, it actually looks like a stalled out system may bring daily showers to parts of the eastern Corn Belt, so that's something we'll have to watch. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll show you that, by the way, uh, coming up with our uh, daily maps. You can see the root zone still showing wet areas, Ohio Valley down toward the Gulf Coast. This isn't nearly as wet as it was one week ago, though. It's turned drier, although you've had recent rain, so this may change again next week over Texas and Oklahoma. Dry for most of the west. Southern Arizona, parts of southern New Mexico on the wet side, and then you can see wet and dry areas throughout uh, the mid-Atlantic and the northeast taking a look at the long-term drought monitor then and this of course changes more slowly uh, than that last product we just showed you there's uh, areas of drought starting to pop up across the central and northern plains northern plains you've had it off and on most uh, well most of the summer let's say it's actually improved over the early part of the summer up there most of the west continues to be dry expect, except the Pacific northwest and parts of the southwest take a look at the jet stream. Here's a cutoff area of low pressure just kinda sitting there. There's Wednesday goes on through Thursday on into Friday. Eventually then it gets uh, pulled in by the main jet stream as chilly air starts to dive into the western portions of the country. So this could be pretty unsettled underneath this system. That doesn't mean widespread heavy rains but it does bring some chances for showers from time to time. So initially on Monday We have an area of low pressure up over the Great Lakes, but there's one forming along this front over the southern Mississippi Valley. So areas of showers and uh, even some thunderstorms, most of the rest of the country dry. We do have that next uh, cool front coming in on Wednesday. That's coming into the Pacific Northwest, but that's not the big feature. We do have this area of low pressure also. Those will combine later in the week, but this is the big uh, system just sitting there. On Wednesday, right over the Tennessee Valley with scattered showers and to the southeast of it, some thunderstorms. That's how far it moves by Friday into the eastern Tennessee Valley. And it's still causing showers all the way up into uh, the Great Lakes. Now, these will be scattered and generally light north, but you can get thunderstorms to the southeast of it. There's that combination of the cold front and low pressure, just a few scattered showers over the northern and central plains. October temperatures, let's go to the 90-day outlook, above normal for most of the lower 48 then I think it starts to change at some point we will begin to see chillier air start to fill in there's November still the southern half above normal and in December I'm going below normal from about the Ohio River northward northern plains above normal south Texas throughout the southwest 90 to outlook for precipitation above normal Great Lakes into eastern Canada below normal southeast and southwest and an above normal area in the Pacific Northwest and northern Rockies as well time.
1: Well, as we told you last week on the show, harvest reports are really all across the board this year. But is the feed price outlook changing? We are hosting our marketing discussions from right here at World Dairy Expo next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2021 World Dairy Expo is brought to you by World Dairy Expo, where the global dairy industry meets. Mark your calendars for the 2022 event, Sunday, October 2nd through Friday, October 7th in Madison, Wisconsin, and learn more at WorldDairyExpo.com.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. A big thank you to World Dairy Expo for having us for our live taping today. A big thank you to our audience. Excited to be here from Madison. All right, I want to preface the discussion by saying we are having this discussion before the USDA quarterly grain stocks report came out. All right, so just knowing that, let's real quick talk about the feed side of the equation. A lot of yield reports out there right now, really a mixed bag, hearing some great yields in portions of Wisconsin. But overall right now, do you think the crop production picture is changing uh, as we go through harvest right now.
7: I think it's still early enough in the game where nobody really has a great sense because with those great yields that we are hearing, there are also some stories, you know, in Missouri and extreme southern uh, Iowa, western Illinois, that are getting some bad yields. So it, there's a pretty mixed bag. But generally speaking, as we've progressed through the soybean crop, a lot of great yields coming out of that. So going into that October report there's you know a pretty good chance that some of these early discussions of another heightened uh, yield and another increase to the number could be on the on the horizon
1: yeah some of these soybean reports are just unbelievable producers saying listen beans are made in August we had one rain and it changed the game I know that you know the, the, the demand picture may change a little bit after this quarterly stocks report but Dan when you look at demand? Is that continuing to be a bright spot, despite some of the issues that we've seen in the Gulf due to Hurricane Ida?
2: World world demand is up. When we look at world trade, it's doing very, very well. However, we do have this problem in the Gulf, and it's not going to be rectified probably until the end of October, November. So that will be a little bit of a drag, and the markets will see that. Uh, But, you know, as we think and look at world trade of corn, soybeans, and wheat, it's higher. USDA is too low. We need to move upwards. The question is, where does the grain come from? Is it Ukraine or the United States?
1: And real quick, before we move on to dairy, the basis has been all over the board. Is there any indication on why we've seen basis kind of widen at a
2: time? Well, like basis that? is improving, and I'm going to be a little different than Mike. Our yield data, which we're getting fairly comfortable with now, is projecting a corn crop below the last year on yield. Beans are a little variable in early yet, but I'm becoming more and more confident that we may see a sub-171 corn crop by the final, and that's a big deal in terms of the overall structure of the market.
1: Huge deal, huge deal for feed prices, too, if that does come to fruition. Ben, when you look at the dairy side, and we've seen some kind of pressure uh, on milk futures, you know, the last few months or so, the export side has been very impressive. Do you think that these, this export pace for dairy can continue?
8: Well, I think that's a that's a good question. It's, it's really supported markets so far this year, coming throughout really – the entire time since the beginning of COVID, we saw exports surprisingly strong, and that's been a real bright point and really helped us as we moved out of 2020, where government intervention, some of the food box purchases, a lot of government support really helped support markets here in the US. Once you started to pull that back a little bit, we relied on exports to kind of help carry us into this year, which they've done really well and we've benefited from, milk prices have benefited from those strong exports, but we have to, be aware that that's not a given. Export markets are competitive on price. It's not always necessarily going to be this strong, so we have to be prepared for some potential downside risk as we look into next year.
1: Do you think, do you agree with the downside risk aspect of it, and do you think it's enough that it will kind of just be this wet blanket on prices or not? I,
7: I agree with Ben that there's definite downside risk, and it it stems from even more than price. It stems from just sheer flow of of volumes built around what's going on in the world. You know, we've watched some really nice recovery, strong, robust uh, economies that are demanding more dairy. But if we throw some more COVID issues in the the mix, that could really stifle some of that as we go forward. And that's certainly a concern, not just globally, but domestically and something that we're definitely watching. So is there risk? Absolutely. But I think there's some other things out there, you know, especially as we watch world uh, production numbers, uh, that could be a, a, a support to price.
1: Well, and you look at the restaurant demand, Dan, we've recovered fairly well and we're seeing consumers, yeah. the spending at, at, at restaurants and the eating out is, is really high. How much of that is due to true demand versus the spending at, at an increased cost due to things like inflation?
2: Well, I you know, I think the demand, whether it's been in the dairy counter or the meat counter, has been record large. And so as we stand back from it, the demand pull is really there. And. I would argue that the dairy markets have been a little too bearish.
1: We're going to get into that a little bit more later on the show. We need to take a quick break, though, and then we'll, we will have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, a technology hurdle that may soon be overcome. Here's John Phipps.
5: Back in the old days, there was no standard connection between 110 volt AC electrical outlets and low voltage DC electronic devices. Every gadget came with its own cord and transformer that either plugged directly into the outlet or was kind of a lump along the power cord. This was unhandy for consumers, but good marketing for the makers of devices and adapters. Now if this sounds familiar to some of you older farmers I'll bet you have a collection of hydraulic coupling adapters piled in a box somewhere. A few years ago manufacturers finally agreed on one standard outlet from the transformer, the USB, but to mate the charging cord to the actual device was another story. The cord for your phone wouldn't work with your Walkman or camera. When the original USB port became the default It came with a USB-A connector. I have one on my Kindle because it's ancient. Meanwhile, device makers went on to adopt the USB-B, the USB-mini, the USB-micro, which should not be confused with the USB-B micro, of course, and recently the USB-C. Except Apple, as part of their market obnoxiousness, particularly in mobile phones, it forces customers to use their own lightning and thunderbolt connectors. Now, I'm not even going to touch on the USB 3.0. Well, the result looks something like this on most desks and in drawers. Multiple chargers with USB ports using different connectors and cables to go to the devices. I've even color-coded some of mine. Meanwhile, auto and farm machinery makers added multiple USB ports, replacing the old cigarette lighter-type outlets. The result is an electronic junk box filled with transformers, chargers, and cords that have gone obsolete, but are still perfectly perfectly functional, in fact, unused. We have trouble parting with things like that. Again, look in our machine shops. The EU has just mandated a solution, the USB-C. Within two years, all devices sold there must have C ports. Apple is not amused, but the size of that market is such that it will likely be the standard port globally. Now this sounds like good news, but I wouldn't rush out to buy new phones and tablets. Within that time, wireless recharging will be the cool way to do things. It's rapidly improving in speed and acceptance. And while, and there's already a universally accepted technical standard, so we won't have to go through the hardware hurdle again. The only problem I see is the name, G. It is spelled QI. This is the symbol. I think we'll be seeing it a lot.
1: Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Tractor Tales with Machinery Pete. Hey,
5: welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. And this week, we're going to head to Wisconsin to check out a classic John Deere B.
9: This is a 1940 John Deere B. I I bought it on an auction just the way it is. And after doing a little research, I ended up coming out with that it was shipped to, brand new to Westfield, Wisconsin. And then it was sold new by the Westfield Produce Company. And then a year later in 1941, Albert Tunn, Bought it. He was a bachelor farmer. Bought it brand new. The tractor still has all original tires out on it. I think it was pretty easy work tractor. I think it had a lot of belt life. That's about it. It's a nice running tractor. We take it to shows. I've ran a single mill with it. A hay press I ran with it. And we just me and my kids we enjoy this. We do praise with it. We uh, take it to shows and work them and do what they're meant to do. Been around tractors all my life and. This is one of my cousin's tractor. My cousin had, so this is the tractor I wanted, and I wanted to get my kids involved. So it's kind of a dying hobby. And then I was told by another collectors that before this tractor was ever painted, should never been painted. It's one of the nicest original John Deere beads you could ever find. I've met a lot of people through this hobby, and it just takes me back in time. You know, my grandpa was a John Deere guy, so that's why I've just like John Deere's.
1: Thanks, Greg. Well, when we come back, dairy margin outlooks are muted by increased costs. We'll show you how the margin squeeze is impacting dairies next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted,
0: timely, tradition.
1: Welcome back. Well, World Dairy Expo is held each year here in Madison, Wisconsin. And while last year's show was canceled, a swift COVID recovery and higher prices meant outlooks were mostly optimistic. But today, the cost picture has definitely changed. And that's this week's Farm Journal report. A dairy with a track record four decades long. Almost all the milk we produce
7: goes to our cheese factory and is made into cheese and that's distributed throughout the United States.
1: Is where you can find Tom Crave, part owner of Crave Brothers Farm in Waterloo, Wisconsin.
7: That's our rotary parlor. Yeah, we started that in April of this year.
1: Striving for efficiency, the 40-year-old dairy recently got an upgrade. Last year we built a new milking parlor. That's much more efficient a year later investments like this are coming at an even higher cost as is nearly every other input on this farm.
7: The biggest one that I worry about though is inflation, the cost of goods, fertilizer. We've had a respectable milk price this last year, but inflation is is gouging into that.
1: It's inflation and rising costs weighing on dairies across the country right now as reports show overall cow herd numbers starting to
2: taper off. Um, I say that changing the national herd uh, is like turning an aircraft carrier around in the ocean. It takes seven miles of open ocean to turn a big ship around and that's what it's like to drop our herd size. The
1: higher costs are eating into outlooks and milk prices have backed off their highs more than $7 per hundredweight lower than a year ago.
2: We raised a lot of our own feed, but even when you do that, that's still generally 40, at the most 40 to 50% of your feed costs. So a 30% inflation on half your feed costs is still a lot of inflation.
1: Concerns about waning margins as labor woes aren't helping ease those problems.
7: Labor is a situation all over the country, as we all know. Uh, it's been in the headlines. Uh, agriculture, unfortunately, is at the forefront of that. We're, we're always labor tight. I'm trying to find immigrant labor, um, immigration is down a little bit. Uh, H-2A numbers are down a little bit. For dairy, uh, it's going to be a situation of can you find somebody locally in a very rural area.
1: It's not just capturing the milk impacted by a lack of labor, but also processing the products.
7: And so some processors are running shorter hours uh, and, and especially in the Northeast that's resulted in some milk being dumped uh, more so than we, we had seen pre-COVID.
1: An uptick in COVID cases is also creating uncertainty around restaurant demand, a sector that typically consumes half the milk turned out in the U.S.
3: Consumers are spending about as much as they were spending pre-pandemic at restaurants and service industry uh, places, bars, restaurants, that kind of thing. So we're, we're back in terms of total dollars but it's not the same uh, across the country. But the demand story for dairy is still a bright spot, with dairy exports continuing to show strength. So you gotta have that release valve, and that's gonna be uh, export markets, and then more consumption of fluid milk all across the country as we've seen schools reopen, as we've seen some restaurants reopen.
1: USDA's look at annual dairy consumption released this week shows despite the sudden loss of restaurant demand during the pandemic, U.S. shoppers still turned to dairy as consumption per person jumped three pounds in 2020.
8: There were some months where we were selling, you know, 30% more ice cream at grocery stores, you know, 20, 25% more butter. And that's where we saw uh, different segments in the industry pull some of the other segments forward. You know, so milk was flat and cheese was flat but we saw butter driving consumption, right? It's up 3%. We saw ice cream, which had been flat for a few years, driving a consumption up 6%.
1: Volatility is a constant for dairy farmers and some economists don't see that disappearing anytime soon. I
3: think volatility is something that dairy producers are uh, used to, I also think it's something that they're probably going to have to live with and stomach uh, for at least the next 12 months.
1: As dairy producers like Oster say, the political climate is yet another challenge he and other dairy producers could continue to face.
2: In our industry is in the midst of sequestering a bunch of carbon through digesters, and it's going to drive some of the economics of dairy farming, and it's also going to um, be a very good or climate change story for the industry.
1: Well, National Milk Producers Federation commenting on USDA's announcement of funding towards climate-smart agriculture practices, saying dairy farms lead the way. Well, agriculture this week lost an ag finance guru known as the Wall Street Cowboy. Chris Narayanan had been on our show several times. He was a marine veteran and a proud Texas A&M alum. His natural ability to connect his experience on Wall Street to agriculture was second to none. He was intelligent, insightful, and most of all, a great man.
0: U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2021 World Dairy Expo is brought to you by World Dairy Expo, where the global dairy industry meets. Mark your calendars for the 2022 event, Sunday, October 2nd through Friday, October 7th in Madison, Wisconsin. And learn more at WorldDairyExpo.com.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Well, you just heard about the rising costs, and really, that is a concern for a lot of dairy producers across the country. Not just rising feed costs, but you think of inflation and just every input on the farm seems to be increasing right now, eating into margin outlooks. But when you look at this cow herd, Ben, you know we've heard that inflation maybe uh, you know eating into the herd size. We look though at uh, the beef herd numbers, and you know Cattle on Feed report showing actually bigger numbers than we expected. Do you think we continue to see this this dairy cow herd number decline as we move over the next few months?
8: I think that we could see a little bit more correction and some right-sizing of the the national dairy herd. I think that we had seen from June through May a 12-month streak of increasing cow numbers that set us apart from the rest of the world where we really, between some of the government aid, some of the support packages and the strong markets last year, producers in the U.S. just kept on expanding and and there was new capacity, there was additional cheese capacity, so there was some room to, to have that happen. I think now that we're seeing kind of prolonged pressure on milk prices, feed costs, and all the other inflation, labor challenges, a lot of producers looking into 2022 are starting to think maybe we take a little breather here and cool down just a bit. So I think that could be supportive of prices a little bit, but I think that there is Probably a little more room to, to go in some of the corrections as we continue to right-size the herd for the feed availability and things like that as we see more pressure looking into 2022.
1: Maybe a decline in the herd, but Mike, when you look at, at milk per cow and on the production level, just when you think dairy producers can't get more efficient, they get more efficient. So even though we may see you know cow numbers come down, do you expect the same on the milk side?
7: not to the same degree to your point management has continued to get better across the space we continue to become more efficient in getting milk out of cows and as we decline the herd you know we've seen this trend before where the bottom end of the herd comes out and the productivity across the entire herd goes up and so there will be a little bit of an offset to the lower cow numbers with higher milk per per cow Um, but you know depending on how deep of a cut we make in culling the herd uh, that may ultimately take milk production down. But back to some of these other comments, the demand has been strong enough that we need to continue to grow the herd, or, or at least production, to maintain that stable platform and balance between supply and demand. So any cuts would be positive.
1: Yeah, speaking of that balance, I mean, you look <clears throat> at the row crop side, and you look at the changing dynamics there, and now the questions of with these you know, fertilizer prices that continue to shoot higher, Dan, Will the U.S. even be able to source enough fertilizer for 91 million acres of corn this year? I mean, I can't even believe we're talking about that, but it is a real question. I mean, what's your take on that as we move That's, through these fall months?
2: It's, it's the biggest question for agriculture over the next five years, because as we looked at the last CRP program, Vilsack was very aggressive in buying land in the CRP, and he wants to do it again. So as we get these high costs moving up, whether it be fertile, you know, phosphate or nitrogen, or, or, or any of that p, and p and K, all of this is going to keep uh, manifesting in that the marginal acres that are there will not come into production uh, uh, in the near dry. And so we end up with a stable, what we call ag base. And U.S. corn and soybean acres kind of plateaued about 180 million acres. So our estimate for next year is farmers only plant 90.5 million acres of corn. That'll be down about 2.5 million acres this year.
1: Well, and if we have enough fertilizer for it, so Mike, as you see that battle back and forth between do we have enough fertilizer, or are we going to plant more soybeans? Had a lot of producers say, I'm just going to plant more soybeans next year. It seems like this battle in price is going to continue possibly as well. Do you expect that to happen in the next year?
7: It'll be a little bit buffered by what's going on in South America. We obviously are looking at big acreage increases there. We're talking already about another record crop of soybeans which on the backside of that, they're going to be faced with some of these same issues. Will they come in with a record large crop of corn like we would expect them to? The the forecast suggests so, but they'll have to play the same game. But weather in South America, I think, will really help play into that conversation because if we start to tighten up the available supply of soybeans in South America and soybeans go through the roof in terms of price, it'll be a natural uh, opportunity to put more acres there. Um, Corn just won't have much of a fight against
8: that.
1: Ben, Dan, Mike, thank you so much. Dan, good luck showing here at World Dairy Expo this week. We need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report.
2: Grit with Grace is brought to you by Zoetis. Your dedication runs deep, and it fuels everything Zoetis does. To protect and support cattle and those who care for them, we are Born of the Bond. Learn more at bornofthebond.com.
1: But when you think of Philadelphia, you often think of a town rich with history. It's the birthplace of the United States where the founding fathers penned the Declaration of Independence. But just south of Philly, you'll find a dairy preserving history, even in the face of adversity. Just south of Philadelphia.
4: We farm around 3000 acres here.
1: Is where Eric Eckes calls home.
4: We have 1400 cows, milk around 650.
1: A family that's farmed in this area for nearly 80 years is one of the last ones left.
4: I mean, this farm started my grandparents in 1943.
1: Out of the 114 dairy farms left in New Jersey, Willowcrest Farms is now one of the largest. And a month ago, the dairy that looked like this, today looks like this.
4: We had a F3 tornado come through.
1: An area not known for dairying is one where devastation from a tornado is also rare. But on September 1st, this dairy farm was the target of Hurricane Ida's wrath.
4: 630, we've got the alert on our phones, imminent tornado just touched down a couple miles that way
1: as they took cover they didn't know this was the scene taking place outside one of the largest tornadoes in new jersey's history ripping across their dairy
4: as we pulled up here the main driver it was just i couldn't believe what i was looking at couldn't drive up here it was trees all the wires were down buildings were blown down there's cows all over the place it was just disaster called my dad and he came over and just walked around and he's like hey, you're just in shock like what do you do where do you start
1: but starting somewhere is exactly what they did.
4: So we had about 600 cows just running loose. So the first thing was all the cows are out, try to gather them up somehow. As
1: Eric and his family were still in shock, they called a few farm employees as well as neighbors for help.
4: By seven o'clock, we probably had 50, 60 people here.
1: As more started to show up, he says 75 people were there until 11 that night, getting the cows
4: to safety. Here is where we could get the cows out, but this side here on the right is where all the cows were pinned.
1: Pinned, but not injured with their machinery too damaged in the storm. They knew they couldn't get the rest of the cows out until the next day.
4: We called Electrical and try to come get power on the milk and parlor because we still have to milk what we can and then Next thing was trying to get water running.
1: Working through the night, the next morning more help poured in.
4: Then a local construction company, Pearson as long as as well as Diamond Materials, they came in cuz they heard about it. One of the foremen came in said, "What do we need?" I said, "Well, first thing is we got 120 cows still trapped. We can't get to them." I mean we have equipment but we can't handle that. And we put makeshift gates up.
1: A temporary plan as the ECS is wade through more rubble and decisions of what to do next.
4: Uh, the struggle is, is trying to, what are we going to rebuild? How can we rebuild? And then the next big problem is assurance, dealing with insurance companies and you know, what they're going to pay and what we can afford to do based on how all that works out. A
1: family grateful for not only the animals they were spared, but other lives not
4: lost. The main thing is thankful that for how much destruction has happened that no, like our family wasn't hurt and not as our family like even like any of our employees were here milking at the time.
1: Finding the silver lining is second nature for this dairy farmer who wears a smile everywhere he goes even in the midst of the devastation.
4: If you look at all the stuff's going on in the world everything seems so divided when like a big disaster like this happens everybody comes together, you know, and tries to help out in any way they can.
1: Many who knew nothing about farming rallied around this family to help the Eccasas pick up the pieces left.
4: We had school teachers here, we have lawyers, we had everybody.
1: A tragedy that brought together all walks of life as this dairy family refuses to walk away.
4: So to try to keep it going, so one day maybe my kids can get to do it.
1: Fighting to have a future in dairy instead of being overcome with the obstacles, as this dairy farmer is doing so with grit and with grace. Definitely a family, that's the definition of grit with grace. A GoFundMe campaign has been set up for the family and Willowcrest Farms as they have a long road to rebuild. But when we come back, John Phipps.
5: Retiring can be hard.
1: Well, walk on a dairy farm today, and even with the advancements in technology, hard work is the fabric of dairies. Here's Sean Phipps.
5: From Andy Gilbert. I know many 70 year- old dairy farmers who will say they work full- time. In reality, given the physical demands that still exist on dairies across the country, how many 70 year olds can put in a full day, say nothing, of a full year of work? In essence, the senior generation should, at some point, be trading their ownership for the money they continue to draw from the farm. Thank you for writing, Andy. Please send me an address. Perhaps more than any other type of agriculture, dairies are accorded a special place in the hearts and respect of farmers and non-farmers alike. The work ethic of rising in the dark and maintaining a relentless schedule with comparatively little respite daunts more than a few of us. It also engenders a unique sense of justice among dairy farmers. People who work hard should be rewarded for that effort. Hence the idea of sweat equity that causes too much friction between generations. This was more manageable before automation and new breeding techniques, which drastically reduced the labor and number of cows and people needed to produce enough for a stagnant if not shrinking demand. Those values are instilled early and are not changed easily with any occupation despite the economics. Older farmers look back on their lifetime of labor and seldom feel they have been adequately rewarded. At the same time, this lifestyle does not offer easy ways to transition to retirement. I was surprised at my own reaction to harvesting the last field of my last crop of my career just a few days ago. Unlike dairy farmers, my workloads are going to stay pretty much the same. I'll still do a lot of tillage and trucking. But it will be on my son's fields, not mine. It was a strange and unsettling um, emotional surprise. Since self-employed people, like farmers, have more economic leverage and control at the end of their careers, not quitting is an option that can grow more attractive as time gets closer. They slow or stop reinvesting in machinery, for example, and ignore longer-term projects that will not pay off or cripple the operation until after they're gone. This adds to transition misunderstandings if an oncoming generation has no ownership to affect those decisions. Therefore, sweat equity is a fiction we've invented to avoid hard choices later. Farms under pressure don't have much time to focus on anything but tomorrow's crises. Like the writer, I think there are a number of actions the older generation can take to alleviate such situations. But my rule of thumb is that those steps are not taken in middle age, the 50s and 60s, they won't happen at all.
1: Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, a photographer who works to get the perfect shot Dairy Expo each year. That's next. The World Dairy Expo is more than the exhibitions and the meetings. It also has a cattle show and sale. And for one photographer, World Dairy Expo is almost a blank canvas that requires the right rhythm and the right technique
10: easy girl i am leah jordan and i am a dairy cattle photographer let's start to let her head neck come my way slightly steven there's very few of us in the country there's probably about six or seven of us from coast to coast and it's definitely a niche market the main purpose is for marketing a lot of the animals we photo they do well in the show ring or is, uh, have higher elite genetics and they're trying to market animals or offspring from those genetics, but there's also a good portion of our market is for kids or parents, anyone, they just enjoy their cows, and they want a, a nice photo to hang up on their wall. And when they come over, we'll kind of brush down their hair, fluff their tails, shine their toes, and get them cleaned up. And then when they come on in the tent, we have a full backdrop set up. I have people assigned to each body part of the cows, someone will hold her, one on each of her four legs, and someone holding their tail, and then another person out front getting her attention.
8: My name is Jason Swanson. I'm the noise man. And I start making louder noises when we, when they're ready to go, to get their attention. Uh, you want to get their heads up and get their ears to face forward. That's when they look the best. So I'll use toys and props like this. You gotta think on your feet real fast and just keep them moving so that uh, photographer can get their picture.
10: It's a definitely a glamour shot. They have all the glitz and everything right to her. Like I said, we try to make them look their best. Let her go. Good girl.
1: By the way, Leah's entire team, they all have other full-time jobs. They just help out at events like World Dairy Expo and to see them all in rhythm, oh my gosh. It was quite the show this week. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to join us again next week as we are back on the road for College Roadshow with Golden Harvest at the University of Illinois. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.